2: Good afternoon. If it's afternoon, wherever you are right now, and I hope you're not too sleepy from watching the Oscars last night. It was generally a satisfying set of outcomes. I could have nitpicked here or there. On other fronts, however, as you'll hear today, uh, things are perhaps not so satisfying. We have some uh, different stories to tell you as the show goes on, but we're going to start with what always seems to be the big story, and I think it's kind of because... The president of the United States wants to be the big story, whatever it takes. Joining us right now, as he has in the past, is Philip Rucker, White House bureau chief at The Washington Post and a political analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. Welcome back to our show, sir.
1: Hi, glad to be here with you.
2: Seems like we're always uh, looking for a new word. You know, there was sort of a chaos narrative a few weeks ago, and I think that got upgrade, upgraded to tumult uh, at one point, and, and words like unglued are starting to be thrown around. And we often say in these conversations, it's never been this bad, and then we have a different kind of conversation in a few weeks where we're saying the same thing. It does seem as though that if there's a different wrinkle this time, it might be that some of the president's... Kind of internal problems seem to be causing him to behave erratically at the level of policy.
1: I think that's right. Uh, what we uh, reported at The Washington Post over the weekend is that White House aides, advisors to the president, friends of the president on, on the outside of the government, are increasingly concerned about his state of mind and his stability right now. Uh, he has been fuming and raging in private about a number of factors, including the really intense scrutiny that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, a White House senior advisor, uh, has been under. In recent weeks and it's manifested itself in a couple of policy areas there was that sort of zigzagging position on gun control we saw that extraordinary meeting the president had last week with bipartisan members of congress where he expressed openness for gun control measures only to appear to backtrack a little bit after meeting with the nra and then there was the trade announcement that the new tariffs on steel and aluminum that was a real shock to the system a new trade war that jolted markets and uh, certainly drew opposition from other Republicans. And, and of course, the feud with Jeff Sessions continues.
2: As always, too, there's a fine line between somebody who's acting let's just use a blunt term, somebody who's acting crazy and somebody who's crazy like a fox. And with the president, you know, we're always asking ourselves that question. I think uh, you look at what he did on guns and it's either very erratic behavior that may be fueled by his, his just level of, of agitation about some of these internal problems he's got, or it could be President Trump very casually thinking, you know, this is kind of a Republican political problem. Really the po- Republican political position on this doesn't really track well with public opinion Particularly, at this moment, why should I have that be my ball and chain just because it's their ball and chain and it's kind of hard to know which thing's happening
1: I think that's right, and I'm not credentialed enough to be able to say whether the president is crazy like a fox or just plain crazy, but I can tell you the people we interviewed uh, inside the White House and around the president are deeply concerned right now. One of his allies said that that this is pure madness. those are the allies' words, and I spoke to Barry McCaffrey, the retired four-star army general, and he said the American people should be alarmed. He said he thinks the president is starting to wobble in his emotional stability and his ability to do harm is only going to increase.
2: We should just uh, look briefly at at a few of these things, although I think most people are vaguely familiar with them. That really is almost the case that you can't keep track of all the problems without a scorecard. And two things spring to mind immediately, which is that he's often at odds with people who work for him, who are a part of his either criminal justice um, establishment or his intelligence establishment. Both things seem to be happening right now. He's referring apparently to Jeff Sessions as Mr. Magoo. Um, Sessions is uh, seems to be uh, making a point of showing himself out in public not being Mr. Magoo uh, yeah. and having happy dinners with his staff. A- and then H.R. McMaster, who is already his third national security advisor. Again, you know, there's just seems to be this sense that his days are numbered, that some kind of clock is ticking
1: yeah well let's start with sessions here uh your listeners will of course remember that the president has been angry with the attorney general for many months now it all stems back to jeff sessions's recusal from the russia investigation which means that the deputy attorney general rod rosenstein is overseeing that investigation well the president began the week upset because sessions had asked the Justice Department's inspector general to investigate alleged misdeeds by the FBI in obtaining those surveillance warrants, where the president wanted him to have criminal prosecutors at the Justice Department look into that. So that already got on the president's nerves. And then, uh, you know, Wednesday night came this dinner that Sessions had with Rosenstein, uh, they were out to dinner, the outing, a photo of the outing leaked out. It was all over cable news that night. The president was watching from the residents in the White House. And he viewed this as an act of solidarity against Trump, as a sign of disloyalty by his attorney general and his deputy attorney general. And he just started raging about it on the phone with his friends and, and advisors late into the night and then before dawn the next morning. He was very upset. Later that day, of course, is when the trade announcement came.
2: Right. And you, know, you can't necessarily yoke one to the other, although people are doing it. And I guess people from well, inside the White House uh, are, are doing that, saying that. I mean, there, there certainly is a pattern that he's had mm-hmm. pretty much since Jump Street, which is that the, a pattern of often making rather dramatic pronouncements with inadequate consultation with, right. with the kind of people that you would typically consult with before you would say something like this. And this totally fits that pattern. Now, another part of that pattern is an awful lot of these things kind of either die on the drafting table or when they emerge in any kind of substance, they're not quite as extreme as they seem to be. I don't know how much ability there is to slow him down on this particular one.
1: On trade, I don't know that he can be slowed down. We have to remember this has been his position, his ideology dating back to the 1980s. It's one of the few issue areas where he has shown any consistency, and I think that's important.
2: It does seem, though, again, that it seems inadequately thought through when you look at yeah. uh, at some of the reactions uh, from our important allies and trading partners, notably Canada. When you look at the fact that it, it does seem like it would, at least over the short haul and maybe medium haul, add quite a bit of money to the cost uh, of goods here in the United States, it's hard for that to be spun as a win. He likes to win. and It just doesn't seem like a really winning position right now.
1: I think that's right and for an example of how hard it is to spin that to the public, just look at Wilbur Ross's appearance on, on cable news the other day where he was holding up the Campbell soup can and the can of Coca-Cola and trying to make an argument but uh, it, you know, drew a little bit of mockery for that.
2: Well, he's also drawn a little bit of mockery for the claim that you know the, this would not measurably, substantially add to the price of an American automobile. Although the, That's the exactly right, you know, it's 175 bucks on the, on an average car. It
1: matters to a lot of people. Right. It may not matter to a, a you know millionaire and billionaire, but it matters to most Americans, especially those who voted for Donald Trump.
2: Let's just uh, turn our attention to H.R. McMaster for a second yeah. here. His, his great sin of late appears to have been when the 13 Russian indictments came down from the Mueller committee saying on his own while abroad, I think in M- Munich, saying, well, that irrevocably proves that they meddled in the election, which was probably supposed to be accompanied by something else like, but we still beat Hillary or something. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous that that's considered the sin because he was just articulating uh, the viewpoint of pretty much everybody in the federal government with the exception uh, of the president. There, there's a unanimous view uh, below the president's level that Russia did in fact interfere in the election, election and that Russia needs to be held accountable for those crimes. And uh, the President Trump has been unwilling to sort of fully uh, embrace that and certainly unwilling to, to take any retaliatory action against Russia.
2: You know, the, uh, obviously, the departure of Hope Hicks was a big story over the week, but it does seem that an awful lot of the the drama anyway, the kind of reality show type drama is focusing right now on Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's had reports that, among other things, he met with um, with lending foreign lenders in the White House and immediately afterwards got loans. For some of the families to troubled businesses, I keep thinking, (laughs) I keep thinking about Chris Dodd. You know, I'm I'm from Connecticut, and Chris Dodd got in all this trouble for like this really conventional mortgage where he Uh, was. I remember that. Yeah, he was was maybe in a VIP program. It might have been worth like half a point or something. Nobody could even prove that he actually got a better rate. But this is just like a lousy little home mortgage. (laughs) <laughs> the idea that you know you can meet with somebody in the White House and then leverage these gigantic loans afterwards seems like we 're an entire an entirely different ethical vocabulary now
1: it, we certainly are, and it 's been an incredible mixing and blending of for Jared Kushner of business interests and his official work as a White House staffer and this is one of the reasons why so many people counseled. President Trump to keep his family outside of the government, keep them as family. Let, if they're going to maintain their connection to their businesses, then, you know, why, then they need to create that wall, that barrier. You can't blend business and personal, or personal business rather, and government business. That appears to be uh, what Kushner at least is alleged of having done. Uh, we'll have to see where the investigation goes. We know some of these, these issues have become uh, of interest to Robert Mueller, the special counsel.
2: Right. One thing that I would just say about this is that under a normal administration if you had if you'd made the probable mistake of bringing in a family member who who still was Going to be pursuing active kinds of business. I mean, you would really, really work hard to avoid the substance and appearance of conflict. You'd work, you do everything in your power to keep an enormous, highly visible firewall between your White House All activities right. and, and your business activities. And it just that just doesn't seem to have crossed anybody's no, mind.
1: and and you know what? Let's not forget about the conflict of interest that appear to be present for the president himself. Remember, he still profits from his hotel properties, from the Trump Hotel, from Mar-a-Lago. You know, four governments are coming and having banquets at the Trump Hotel here in Washington. They're doing things. The Republican National Committee and Republican politicians are holding fundraisers at the Trump Hotel. The Trump Hotel is profiting from all of this business. The owner of the Trump Hotel, of course, is Donald J. Trump, the president.
2: Right. And there's starting to be a kind of narrative uh, that uh, the White House is kind of open for business. And in the case of Jerry Kushner, there's this narrative that he's perceived as having these kind of financial weaknesses. He's got some problems with with his own career and his family business in real estate. And so why not go in there? Uh, with whatever your agenda is, if you're China, if you're Mexico, if you're Israel, if the if you're the UAE, why not go in, have talks with him? You know he's got a weakness. You know there's something that he there's a sugar plum that you could ultimately dangle in front of him, and that's starting to be, it seems anyway, a strategy in dealing with the White House.
1: That's exactly right. And uh, my colleagues at the Washington Post had a story last week about this very subject, where foreign governments have been. Uh, Scheming amongst themselves to figure out how to manipulate Jared Kushner, how to capitalize on these financial uh, weak points for Kushner to manipulate him in in their country's interests.
2: So, one of the few names that we haven't said so far, Philip Rucker, is that of John Kelly. It does appear yeah, as what chief we, of staff. Yeah, though we're heading towards some kind of clash of titans here. We know that Kelly is ultimately responsible for the fact that Kushner's interim or temporary security clearance was dropped. He doesn't have the security clearance he used to have. I think that was my understanding was that after the Rob Porter incident, Kelly essentially said, Well, we can't have a whole bunch of people around here who are basically, you know, living day to day day on these temporary security clearances. So they're all being revoked. But that took away Kushner's top secret clearance, which is kind of essential to doing certain kinds of White House business exactly and activities. Right. So I, we're starting to get the sense it's, it's going to be one or the other, right? The, this, this is now really the clash between uh, Ivanka and Jared and the chief of staff is heading down the home stretch in some way.
1: Well, they are clashing. That's certainly right. Uh, but they're also coexisting for the moment. So uh, I don't know that either, you know, Kelly or Kushner are going to be out the door in the near future. But certainly it's an uncomfortable uh, source of tension for the two of them. And, you know, Kelly is trying to follow what he sees as a, uh, a standard practice, a process here with the security clearances. He has vowed not to treat Kushner as anything other than a normal staffer. He doesn't get special discon- you know, special attention or special uh, privileges simply because he's the president's son-in-law. Uh, so he's been treated as staff, and he's been unable—the uh, FBI has been unable to clear him for the highest level security clearance with his background check because of the problems that we discussed earlier, and therefore his security clearance was downgraded. Now that's a serious problem for Jared Kushner because he currently has a portfolio where he oversees the Middle East peace process between Israel and the Palestinians. He also is the lead on the U.S. relationship with Mexico, renegotiating NAFTA, building the wall, all of those complicated issues that we're dealing with with our neighbors in Mexico. I don't know how he does that job effectively and to the best of his abilities without having access to the nation's top secrets, and so it's going to be a challenge for him.
2: Uh, Philip Rucker, last question here. Um, last night, as people were watching the Academy Awards, uh, social media kind of came alive with a new report, which was that the, the, the Mueller uh, investigation had um, asked at least one witness and probably a lot of witnesses for all communications, dating well back into the time of the campaign, going back, I think, in, into somewhere... in in 2015, communications involving not only Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, but lots of the other names that we've been saying uh, even just now. Is this, I I don't know, I would have just assumed that that was a big part of the net that uh, Mueller was casting. Is, Is this big news for some particular reason?
1: I actually don't think so. I mean, it's interesting because uh, the subpoena information was obtained publicly. That That is stuff that usually is kept private, but it's very standard procedure for the special counsel. I don't think any of the names on that list uh, were surprising to people. I mean, if you're conducting an investigation, into possible collusion coordination between the Trump campaign and Russians, those are the people whose context you'd want to explore, right? They're the top officials on the campaign. They're the advisors to the president. They're the people who who we know already to have had some relationship or ties to Russia. So it's not wholly surprising uh, to look at that list.
2: The one person for whom it might be surprising or unsettling anyway is mm-hmm. President Trump, who, as we know, is kind of hyper-focused on chirons. Those are the little kind of words that appear. Here at the bottom of the screen, whether yeah. you're watching Fox or CNN, if that gets turned into a, a frequent crawl or a chiron, you know, that it's the kind of thing that might feed the kind of agitation you've been describing.
1: I think that's exactly right, and, and he has maintained, you know, he's said it a zillion times now, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion, and, and so if there's any indication that Mueller is, in fact, investigating a possible collusion that will agitate and irritate the president, but look, the President Trump has a number of things he can be agitated by at the moment, including uh, our reporting on, on what his, his White House aides are describing as pure madness, but also the scrutiny on his son-in-law. It's all irritating him and and has had him in a dark mood lately.
2: Well, Philip Rucker, uh, first of all, you've been generous with your time. The reporting in The Washington Post has been just amazing uh, on this. Uh, Philip Rucker is uh, White House Bureau Chief and a political analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. Thanks for sharing part of your Monday with us. Thank you so much. Glad to be with you. So that was the big White House news here on Monday. There's news all over the place. And here in the state of Connecticut, uh, there's an unusual confrontation going on over the nomination of Justice Andrew McDonald to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. That was fought out in a committee uh, last week. There is more fighting to come. Coming up in the next segment, we'll talk to one of the Republican leaders about what their problem is with Andrew McDonald, why that nomination is causing so much of a stir. A little bit later in the show, too. We're going to uh, talk a little bit about the world of sports and in particular, why more than ever, teams seem to be trying to lose intentionally. Professional sports franchises are doing what is often known as tanking. It's become an epidemic. We'll tell you why. Okay, we're back. Sorry, I had to make one adjustment there. We're back now, and um, so the Supreme Court of the State of Connecticut is probably the most undercovered branch of government. Well, no, it's not. Probably, it is the most undercovered uh, part of the state government, uh, particularly relative to its importance. I mean, most people, you know, just don't know very much about it. The press doesn't really cover it. I am kind of famously, even in this newsroom full of really smart, heavily engaged journalists, I'm like kind of famous as the Connecticut Supreme Court nerd. I'm actually kind of. I read the decisions sometimes. I I could name all the justices, stuff like that, which many journalists, believe it or not, probably couldn't do because we just don't pay any attention to it. The only time we pay attention to it is when all hell breaks loose, and all hell breaks loose typically over confirmations of chief justices. This will not be the first time uh, the the hell that is broken loose now, or if there's either very 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 high profile cases or very controversial decisions. But most of the time, the Supreme Court just kind of lopes along in this very studious monastic existence. Uh, but that is not the case right now. Andrew McDonald, who is currently a justice on the Supreme Court, uh, formerly a uh, state senator uh, and also the counsel to Governor Malloy for uh, some of the years of the Malloy administration, um, it has been nominated to be the chief justice. And his nomination is not going swimmingly. I think it's fair to say. Uh, Last week, he spent 13 hours testifying to the Judiciary Committee, and then for his troubles got a 2020 uh, vote, which counts as an unfavorable report to the House and Senate. He is opposed primarily uh, by Republican legislators. So we thought it would be interesting to talk to uh, one of their leaders. Len Fasano is the uh, Connecticut State Senate Republican leader, Serves the 34th District of Durham, East Haven, North Haven, and Wallingford. Uh, and uh, he's with us right now. Len Fazano. thanks for taking some time to join us.
3: Colin, thank you for having me on.
2: So um, what's going on here? Uh, you've got, uh, I mean, uh, you know, most confirmation processes for justices of the Supreme Court, you know, they're kind of layups, although lately they haven't been. And this one is going to go right down to the wire. So, so w- why is that happening?
3: Well, I think that uh when uh well first of all I, I know Senator McDonald, Justice McDonald very well when he first got to the Senate. We came in our freshman year together and uh, I've worked with him on other pieces uh, of legislation and then when he was in the governor's office and uh you know, I my caucus and overwhelmingly supported uh Justice McDonald to sit on the Supreme Court and um And and that vote went very smoothly and and very well and uh, showed a lot of confidence in them. But, you know, there's a big difference between asking someone to be a member of your team and asking someone to be your team captain. Those are two different obligations and two different, uh, I would argue, uh, requirements required to do that. So I think the only way you can figure that out is you have to look at, his decisions, and he's obviously uh, written a lot of decisions, participated in decisions um, and in, in bills. And this is the only way you can get a flavor of who Justice McDonald is and what he would be when he, if he were to be the Supreme Court justice. It's about not whether he came on the right side of the case or the wrong side of the case. That's not really the import. The import is the methodology which got him to whatever opinion that he rendered. So I think that that takes folks to do an awful lot of homework, an awful lot of reading, and this is really tough stuff. I mean, this is not easy stuff to read and understand, and especially uh, I am a lawyer, but those who are not a lawyer in the legislature, that's a tough read. Uh, it's very technical. So um, I think in this case what a lot of us have done is have read, Uh, a bunch of decisions and there's some that raises concerns and i've talked to justice mcdonald before his confirmation hearing in front of judiciary and then i stayed up to two in the morning to watch the confirmation hearing and uh, i read some more and i'll be meeting with justice mcdonald but this is a a critical time um uh justice mcdonald is i think younger than i am and uh, certainly he could be the chief justice for a number of years.
2: Isn't it, and, uh, isn't it an eight-year eight appointment, though? It's eight-year
3: appointment, uh, but uh, once someone gets in, it's pretty much rooted uh, just like even trial court judges. Very few of them, even if they've run a little bit off the path, are, are taken off for a number of reasons. Palmer just squeaked by... Um, Last year,
2: which was very He's surprising too, He's
3: coming to his retirement hmm. year, and I think he just squeezed by a few votes. And frankly, uh, I think some people changed their minds to vote for him because they didn't want to send him packing with a couple years left to his. Uh, term on the Supreme
2: Court. Okay, so I so I I, I, I began by asking you what's the problem, and I, I'm not sure you're giving me the answer yet. Although you've you've well, identified it as being somewhere in the case decisions of Andrew McDonald, it's not about anything else. You guys are reading case decisions, and it's not how the cases well, come out; it's how they are reasoned. That's what you're telling me, right? Correct. So what's wrong yeah, with how he so, reasons cases? So when you look at
3: when you look at the death penalty case, for instance. Mm. Um, uh, one, the question is why would he, why would he sit on the death penalty case? It is uh, he was counsel for the governor. It was the governor's number one issue. He obviously was the lawyer for Governor Malloy. He pushes uh, in that role, you push the uh, I don't, I don't legislation think, by Governor Malloy. I don't think Governor Molloy was
2: facing the death penalty on that. I may have missed I'm that. Sorry? I don't think Governor Molloy was facing the death penalty in that case. Uh, I, I think might that
3: Governor Malloy argued. I think even Andrew McDonald testified this was a high priority of Governor Malloy, the 2012 law that the Supreme Court overruled or effectively uh, get rid of the death penalty. But uh, Justice McDonald argued when he was the lawyer for Governor Malloy, this was one of his main focuses in 2012. So I think that he's already testified to that at the hearing. So when you look at it it so was you so you he think he should have re,
2: he, you think he should have recused.
3: Yeah, I don't think he should have sat on it. Right. Was there
2: a motion to recuse? I I don't know the answer to this question. Was there a motion to recuse? Did anybody uh on any side of this case um make a motion for him to recuse?
3: Neither person on either side has had made a motion for him to recuse. Uh however the uh, justice could uh, have to inflect inwardly whether or not they believe they have a conflict. And Did, did Chief Justice Andrew
2: Rogers, said, I mean, as you say, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is different. Is the team leader uh, different from the rank and file justice? Did uh, Chief Justice Chase Rogers suggest at some point that uh, Justice McDonald should not hear the death penalty case?
3: According to Andrew McDonald, the answer is no. The Chief Justice did not, but Andrew uh I should say Justice McDonald indicated it would be extraordinarily rare for uh, a chief justice to, as he sort of put it, butt into someone's business and say, uh, you're not supposed to sit on this or, you know, I would be careful sitting on this. So he testified uh, to that statement. And when he was in my office, said uh, in my office that it'd be extraordinarily rare, rare for any justice to say to another justice that I cannot, um, that you should not sit on a case.
2: Let me ask you this. So, did did, no. did anybody, anywhere, like did anybody in the state legislature, uh, anybody in the executive branch, anybody anywhere suggest that McDonald had a conflict and should recuse? Was that ever According part of any to, kind of public one, debate? Once
3: again, I can only tell you what, the, what uh, Andrew McDonald said, and he said that nobody— well,
2: like did, him, nobody did, made any did you? Uh, suggestion to him Nope. No. I mean, it just seems to me that you're, it seems a little strange if that I, sud- suddenly you guys, Colin, well, let me be, let me just ask this. It seems yeah, a little strange yeah. that you are suddenly really, really exercised uh, about his failure to recuse in a case where, as far as I can tell, nobody, including you, including any member, Republican member of the Judiciary Committee, nobody on the Supreme Court, not the Chief Justice, nobody ever suggested this. But suddenly now, years later, his recusal is a source of... Uh, of of grave concern for you? I mean, where did this come from?
3: Well, if I can, number one, we don't know who's going to sit. The justices decide among themselves and when they come out. Now, you know, I didn't, if you want to say, hey, Cope, I didn't pay attention when the matter was going to be heard by the uh, Supreme Court. I don't follow their calendar. I don't know uh, when a matter is going to be heard. So what they do, it's they... Uh, Briefs go in, the justices get together. If there's a recusal, they talk among themselves, they figure a substitute, and they go out and they sit. So you wouldn't know to the day of argument uh, whether or not someone is sitting. They don't really let that be known, uh, number one. Number two, when it was argued, uh, and I don't remember uh, being involved knowing it that well, but when it was argued – I know when the case came out, it was pretty much known that he had sat on it. And there was a significant amount of rumbling inside the legislature after the fact. I'm sure if, you know, we're doing a hundred other things and. None of us are really watching exactly when the appellate court goes into session and when the Supreme Court is. I would not have any knowledge of something like that. But, it's but if it were such, such, such a on our radar, sheet. If we're if we're, sit, let me just, let me just interject for a second. Justice, I would not have to monitor a Supreme Court justice to suggest, hey, uh, how could you sit on a case in which you were a lawyer and applying to your a client that it's constitutional and then sit on the Supreme Court case, it's going to rule in the very uh, arguably – uh, the very uh, decision that you gave your client when you had him sign the law.
2: But this case but was. Let no, me let me, me just talk for senator senator senator. Let me senator, let me ask some follow up questions here. This is so this case was years ago. Um, if it were such a gross misprision of justice as to constitute a disqualifier now for uh, Andrew McDonald to be chief justice, it's amazing that there's never been any public statement by anybody until the last week or so. I mean, how is it? That I mean, and this was a very high-profile case. You say you're really busy; you can't pay attention to uh, everything. But this was probably the most ho- high-profile case to come out of the Supreme Court since gay marriage. After,
3: uh, after it was out. After it was out, but not before. You, I didn't see any hype on this. Maybe I missed it, but I didn't see anybody uh, say, "Hey, tomorrow they're going to rule on this case." There's nothing I or argue this case.
2: The There's abolition of I capital punishment. Ever, sorry. Uh, the abolition of capital punishment.
3: Yeah, well, we didn't know it. I, we didn't kind know a what big they were going to do because no one assumed that they were going to go that far out. Even the, um, uh, I think, no one assumed that they were going to reach the conclusion that they reached um, at all. Uh, I think it took a lot of people by surprise the way they went about, very delicately, uh, tiptoeing around the constitutionality and severance clause. So until you read the decision. You don't know what what the outcome is. You don't know uh, how they were going to the methodology for the rationale until the decision came out. Are
2: That's you are you un, unhappy with that decision? Do you wish we still had capital punishment in Connecticut?
3: Look, I voted in favor of the uh, keeping the capital penalty I on, on that bill. I think I voted against it because I felt that a constitutional issue. Um, so I think I voted against that bill. Uh, But before I have voted in favor of capital punishment, that's not the issue that I am judging Sarah McDonald on. It's never an issue, or Justice McDonald on. The issue before us is the methodology for which they used uh, in that case. Uh, But the issue for him is not the decision, although I have problems with it. It is what it is. The issue is he shouldn't have sat on it. And the second part is his concurring opinion, when he basically said the death penalty is a racially biased, um, is a racially biased sentence, if you would, when the Supreme Court had opened up a docket and the habeas court had uh, indicated that um, there was no race, there was no racial bias in the death penalty, and that was in front of the Supreme Court. But Andrew uh, Justice McDonald decided in his consent, in his uh, concurring uh, majority call it racially biased. Isn't that where they true.
2: call them like a Isn't concurring right? opinion? Isn't that where they use the term concurring opinion?
3: No, no. There's a concurring opinion where you say, I concur with the majority for the reasons and you go through it. This was like an advisory opinion, which is something that's more than just frowned upon. You don't really do advisory opinion. I'd be like us writing to the Supreme Court and say, we're going to pass a bill tomorrow. Can you tell me if it would be constitutional if we pass it? You don't ask for advisory opinions. And the problem with the concurring opinion, which I brought to his attention, is it seems that there was a um, the, the Supreme Court itself said, let's put an end to whether this is racially biased or not. Let's send it down to the trial court for a decision and have it come back up and it did and it said it wasn't racially biased in another case uh and i think justice mcdonald knew that case would never see the light of the day so he said it was that the death penalty was racially biased and he's factually wrong there's no evidence to that but he knew that this case was going to be moved now, right. the only other justice who concurred who wrote it with him it was co author it wasn't just him it was justice norcott but you know the majority stayed away with him if you read the dissent uh, from the Chief Justice on that issue, the dissent is appalled that they even went in that direction. It wasn't brief. Was was it
2: wasn't that, argued. Was that Justice Espinoza? Was, uh, the, was that Justice Espinosa's dissent? Because she no, tends that, she um, to be appalled by everything. Hey, I OK, I, I want to pause yeah. this part. I want to ask you about some other stuff. Our time is limited yeah. here. I think it's worth covering this. So, uh, you know, and you can just tell me I'm wrong about all this stuff, but I think it's worth bringing up. Yeah. Uh, some people yeah. are going to say you guys are just doing it because you've got the numbers. You've got the numbers to cause this kind of problem. Um, you didn't have the numbers in the past. Uh, That may also explain why some of these people sailed through 30 to 3 or something, and now it's a very tight vote. How much of this is just about the fact that you guys can do this?
3: Absolutely none of it. Okay. Absolutely none. I'm telling you my word uh, is absolutely none of it. Has to do with
2: that. How much of this is animosity between you guys and Governor Malloy? Everybody knows that Governor, no, M- Governor no, Malloy doesn't get along very well with le- the legislature on either party. This is party. this is you know this is sort of a swan song. Mm-hmm. He's almost at the end of his time. Chase Rogers pro- plopped an opportunity in his lap to appoint a, 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 a chief justice. He picked from the court a guy who is very close to him, not just as his counsel, but as we know, kind of a friend as well. How much of this is just you guys saying, "Nah, you're, you're not going to get away with that, Dan." First of
3: all. I told the governor, I told the governor I met with him that, uh, gee, I hope he picks somebody that he knows, likes, understands, trusts, thinks is very competent. You want a governor to put somebody for chief justice who you think as governor is going to do a great job. And the best way you could do is know who the person is. And look, there's not a doubt in my mind that Andrew is an extraordinarily bright guy, really bright guy. Um so I don't have any problem with the fact that he picked somebody he knew. That's that's fine. That's that's good judgment, I think, and I think that's what you want people to be doing, because you put somebody in such a, a high-profile position.
0: How much the of this is? Really yeah, is go the ahead.
3: question is methodology. That's all it is. Hmm. So all well, this is methodology. And look, when Andrew was up for, for justice of the Supreme Court, we weren't as tied, but we had significant numbers. So it's not about ever. Uh, I don't think there's any justice uh, the Supreme Court that. Um, we have given a hard time. When Palmer went up last year, as I mentioned to you, uh, there was—and he's on virtually every decision, as Andrew is, Justice uh, Justice McDonald is. Virtually, they write almost the same thought pattern, and he barely made it through Republicans and Democrats voting against him. Because you and guys get the numbers. Hey, because, I just want
2: to correct one thing that you said. When McDonald was approved yeah. by the Senate, it was 30 to 3. It wasn't anything close. There wasn't substantial right. uh, opposition. Uh, and by the House, it was, one, it was 125 to point. 20. Yeah. Um, That's
3: my point is that he flew through. And if, you know, whether we're a minority or not, we certainly could have raised Cain on anybody he puts up and and caused a monkey wrench. But that isn't what we wanted to do. Okay, let me ask
2: you. Let me ask you two more questions here. One of them is, what's the future of this? I mean, are are you pretty sure that you guys are going to hold the line on this and that maybe ultimately uh, Justice McDonald is not confirmed or, or is this an open question? What kinds of conversations are going on?
3: It's an open question. I promise uh, Justice McDonald that I and Thomas Claris would meet with him again. And I think we're trying to schedule a meeting for Thursday of this week. Um, The first time I met with uh, Justice McDonald, I told him where I was on a few of my concerns. He then sent me uh, three uh, huge notebooks to read all of his decisions, uh, which I have done. Um, I'm finishing up the third uh, tomorrow. Uh, So I'm I'm willing to talk to him about his decisions and those other decisions in greater detail. I got into them very superficially because I had not finished reading all the decisions now I have and we could have a more thorough discussion. I'm open to it as I said I like Andrew personally and I think he's very bright. He has to give me the comfort level that and I'm talking for myself here. Let me ask you uh, another
2: let me ask he, you another thing. I, that, and you know that I, I think you know that I like and respect you and and I think it has been un- somewhat unfair that you guys have to a certain degree been taught Hard with the argument that there may be some resistance to him because he's gay. I think I know you and Themis and everybody else well enough to know that that's, that's not true. That's not the way that you operate. But are you worried that you ultimately, if in fact McDonald doesn't get confirmed, the LGBTQ community may see this uh, as having played a role?
3: Look, I can't help what other people want to believe. Uh, I know who I am as a person. I know how I've voted in a the- passed on on these issues and i know i supported andrew and andrew and i've had plenty of conversations on this topic so andrew and i andrew knows where i stand on this issue uh, entirely so i'm uh, i can't help what other people think i have to do what's right i think for the state of connecticut in my view wherever that vote comes on but i won't be bullied into voting a particular direction because it is a vote that will garner less resistance i got to vote for What I think is best, I'm talking for myself, for the state of Connecticut and the judicial system. And that's all I'm looking at. That's why it's not even his decisions that I care about. It's his methodology. Okay, let me
2: ask you you one more question. Um, Let's say, hypothetically, that things just don't work out and Andrew McDonald is not confirmed as chief justice. Um and let's say that Richard Robinson is up next. I personally think Chief Justice Richard Robinson sounds terrific. But are you guys going to do this again? I mean, are you well, going to like me fly speck yeah.
3: right now, Colin? Yeah. I have in in reading Andrew's uh, Justice McDonald, I apologize for calling him Andrew. Justice McDonald's decisions. I've had the opportunity to also read Justice Robinson's decisions as well. Mm-hmm. Um and I think uh you know, he may not I mean, I agree with him on all his decisions He's um, because some of his decisions I don't agree with uh, Justice McDonald. I see Robinson right next to him. But uh, in uh, other decisions, I don't see Justice Robinson there. And this is a guy, Justice Robinson, who was in the trial court, the appellate court. Now he's on the Supreme Court. Um, he's an impressive individual. He was really, really good on uh, the appellate court where he has a abundancy of uh, writings, uh, I could see me getting behind uh, Justice Robinson and uh, absolutely get Interesting.
2: behind. Interesting. Uh, also, I think he knows, doesn't he know, like, know martial arts? I think he's like a martial arts expert. So he could, <laughs> well, more yeah, you and you and Kissel, he could kill you with two fingers, you know. Uh, <laughs> so be careful. Uh, listen, to Len Fasano, Senator Fasano, thanks so much for joining me today.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity.
2: Wish we had more time, but we've got to move on here to our final section, which has something to do with um, well the fact that some teams, particularly in the NBA, may not be trying absolutely as hard as they could to win. I know that's kind of shocking, isn't it? We're the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Supreme Court.
0: In other news, Steve Bannon is in Italy to watch their election, which he says is their version of the Trump vote. So you might want to squeeze in that Italian vacation before things go sideways. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is still in an Oscar after party. The part of Bill Curry was played by Samuel Alito. On tomorrow's show, you think you know voodoo, but do you? And now. Back to Colin.
2: You know, what is it with Steve Bannon? He like, shows up at other people's elections now and acts real scary. Um, it's not enough that he w- he's scary with us. All right. Anyway, we're leaving politics now to talk about sports. Uh, Dave Scheinan is joining us, sports and feature writer for The Washington Post and the author of RG3, The Promise. I believe he's uh, joining us from a baseball game uh, right now, but we're not going to be talking so much about baseball. Um, we're going to be talking about the fact that, well, so first of all, Dave Shinen, welcome to our conversation. <laughs> Thank you very
0: much. Thanks for having me.
2: So if one is a fan of the storied Phoenix Suns uh, basketball franchise, one is familiar with actually uh, a kind of a trope they have uh, online. It's called the timeline, hashtag the timeline. And the whole idea and the basic meaning of the timeline is we suck now, uh, but we have a plan for not sucking. And a lot of that plan involves... A certain amount of of contemporary sucking in order to get into position for really good draft choices. Um, There there were people that I think Phoenix is either mathematically eliminated right now or is going to be in its next game. It'll be the first NBA team to be mathematically out of contention. And there's even a certain amount of celebration going on in their fan base. So explain why such a thing could possibly be happening. Well, um, you know, tanking
0: uh, has a very long history in professional sports. It's not a new concept. Uh, there have been famous examples of teams like the Houston Rockets in the early 1980s uh, tanking in, in order to get the worst record and get the first draft pick, and they picked Hakeem Olajuwon. Uh, The Pittsburgh Penguins, right around the same time in the NHL, tanked in order to get the first pick and got Mario Lemieux. Both of those teams went on to win championships with those players. Um, But I think what has changed now is that it has become more accepted by the fan base. Like you said, fans are on board with this. Fans will trade two abysmal seasons for one championship or one shot at a championship. And so it's much, the stigma is gone from it. And the second thing that's changed is that all these front offices now in all these sports are being taken over by analytics types as opposed to people who have grown up in the sport. Uh, So the GMs are now coming out of Ivy Leagues and they've got business degrees and they've got, you know, master's degrees and PhDs. And they're, you know, they're coming in talking about, cost-benefit analysis and risk management and things like this. And so you're left with a situation now where the problem is there's not just one or two teams every year that are doing this. It's a third of the league in the NBA and in Major League Baseball as well, and that's where you start running into problems. If a third of your league is is writing off an entire season, you're going to have big problems with, with competitive putting forth a competitive product.
2: In in basketball in in the NBA, Dave, what's the rule? I mean, there's got to be a rule against tanking.
0: Well, you know, there there are, but you know, it's hard to codify it, I mm. guess. I mean, you know, obviously, I don't think you're seeing players going out there and tanking games like you would in in a point-shaving scandal or some kind of gambling scandal. It's nothing like that and and in fact, coaches too, you know, are are for the most part trying to win but but they're being given marching orders by front offices uh to to maybe play certain lineups under the guise of let's look at younger players and not play our veterans who could give us a better chance of winning let's take a look at our young players who we might be counting on for the future but who are going to lose us games right now so it's it's just hard to enforce i mean the nba has has put out memos to all of their teams, all their owners, that we will deal with this in the harshest uh, possible terms if if you are caught, you know, tanking. But at the same time, it's difficult to prove.
2: Right. I mean, let's turn our gaze to the NFL for a second. Uh, Have the Cleveland Browns been tanking, or are they just unbelievably terrible? I watched a few Browns games this year. I'm not prepared to answer that question, are you? No,
0: and and it's much harder, I think, to tank in the NFL because, you know... um, for every uh, Andrew Luck uh, who pays off a, a team that, that tanks. I mean, he's also been injured the last couple of years. But, you know, there's, there's plenty of Ryan Leafs out there who, you know, who, who, who are complete failures as overall first-round picks. So it, it, it's much harder to tank in the NFL. But, you know, the, the Browns are one example of a team that, yeah, you, you wonder where that line is between tanking and just being terrible.
2: And so, I mean, you say that some of this comes from the front office, where these, these data-crunching geeks are. On the other hand, right. the front office includes the owner. It's hard to sell tickets, I would assume, to a team that, you know, maybe has put some of their better players on the IR, which is one of the right. ways that you tank, right? You take a couple of guys who are halfway decent, you put them on injured <laughs> reserve so they don't even have to go out there and flop. Uh, but well, then you don't sell tickets.
0: Well, but, but the other part of that is that you do this primarily through young players who are not making a lot of money and that's what you're seeing in baseball and that's why there's a current labor crisis in baseball is because tanking is accompanied by teams shedding veteran salaries and paying all these young kids the minimum salaries, and so you know their 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 revenues may shrink, but so are their payrolls, so are their expenditures, and so you wind up you know essentially breaking even um, that 's the biggest problem right now in baseball because baseball does unlike the other sports does not have a salary floor, which means team there's no minimum that the team has to to pay in payroll, whereas in the NBA and NHL, there are salary floors where, you know, teams are required to field, you know, minimum payroll
2: teams. Although in the NFL, rookies are incredibly cheap compared to veterans and, you know, right. a, good, a good draft position. I mean, I'm surprised more NFL um, teams, parentheses, Jets, close parentheses, aren't tanking because, in fact, you can get a lot out of it and it's, it's you have a cheaper payroll. Yeah,
0: that that is true as well. It's just I I do think that the NFL there's it's somewhat um, it's more of a crapshoot uh, in, in the NBA especially and the NHL for that matter too. You know the 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 two or three best draft prospects every year are can't miss guys. It's very rare to see a guy uh, you know in the N- NBA or NHL. Who who, com- who completely falls apart as as a pro- as a player. But
2: but the so Golden the Golden enough- State Warriors are not dominant because they got this one terrific draft pick. Right, the, the Golden State Warriors right. are dominant because of tremendous discipline and chemistry.
0: That's right. But, but that's been hard to replicate i mean they're they're a unique case. I don't think there's you know you you would have a hard time replicating the success in in golden State, given the the way that they've drafted over the years
2: um so I don't know what can be done about this anything or is this just the yeah. the new the new normal
0: well, I mean there's two things that can be done one's radical and one's not so radical. The radical thing is to go to the relegation system like they do in European soccer and some other. Uh, international leagues where teams that you know don't aren't competitive are dropped to a lower division that has no chance to win championships, and then you know it, it's three years or so until they can be moved back to the upper league. Um, that's never going to happen, I don't think, on, on these shores. The other thing you could do though is to is to stop tying draft positions to records. In other words, you know, the draft has historically been bottom up. You know, a reverse mm-hmm. order. The the worst teams draft the the get the best draft picks. If you took away that uh, tie and sort of made it uh, a complete lottery. um from all the way from 1 through 30 in the NBA, I think you would, you know, eliminate some of this tanking.
2: Dave Shinen, we're going to have to stop right there. Dave Shinen from the Washington Post. Thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show. We never tank shows, by the way. We are competitive every single day. Betsy Kaplan insists on it.